0: Hi, um, I'm Pastor Mike. And uh, in this video, I'm going to be following up with several conversations I've had with a couple of other, uh, other people coming from a Christian background on the topic of science, evolution, and philosophy in general. Now, uh, just by way of introduction, some, some of you might see this video for the first time in terms of uh, n- not having seen other videos I've done. Um, I I have placed this this presentation on a website called the Sola Scriptura Zoom Church. There's a website, a YouTube channel, and a podcast with that same name. Um, And the point of this website has primarily been um, to make the case that throughout the entire history of Christianity, uh, people have not quite been successful at developing a, a true Sola Scriptura theology. And this is not something I'm the only one saying, it's actually theologians from the various Protestant perspectives who have worked uh, towards Sola Scriptura. The the majority of them have come to realize that what they're doing is not in fact a true Bible only theology. Now, given the fact that there's so many different types of theologies in Christianity, people coming from many different perspectives, I think um, it, it should be viewed as an embarrassment to Christianity that no one has figured out how to do a theology with with the Bible by itself, just the Bible alone. And on this website, I have argued that there is a possible way to do this, as long as we're careful to take certain steps first, that make it possible for us to to immerse ourselves within the world of the Bible and figure out what the theology is uh, when we we look at things through the, the perspective of the Bible alone. So anyway, uh, most of my presentations <clears throat> and this website so far have been about this topic uh, as, and I've had numerous conversations. Uh, I shouldn't say numerous because the website only has, uh, or the, the channel only has about 20 videos. So uh, maybe half of the videos on here have been conversations I had with other Christians and people from other perspectives uh, looking at this idea of a Sola Scriptura theology. Now this presentation and a few conversations I've had uh, previously and it's actually uh, um, episodes number 16 and episode number 20 um, have been kind of on a tangent uh, discussing the issue of science and evolution. But you know, there is a connection for those that have followed uh, the whole series of presentations. And in fact, there's a document that uh, people can download and read, uh, it's at bit.ly. So bit.ly that, uh, backslash uh, solar scriptura manifesto, and in that document I kind of lay out the whole presentation, and uh, there's I have quite a bit to say about how all this interacts with with science in general, and uh, you know the, the scientific methodology and so on. So anyway, um, the topic of evolution is a little bit tangential here, but uh, it is important to the overall picture. So in this uh, presentation, I'm going to discuss uh some aspects of theology philosophy and, and uh, science and how they interact um and it's uh, I, I recommend especially for people that might not be too familiar with some of the various perspectives in christianity to go back and listen to the presentation uh for episode 16 and 20 to see other christians point of view or how they relate to this topic coming from coming from a different perspective Uh, because it might help them to better understand some of the things I'm I'm, uh, covering in this video. Um, Now, why why does this matter? Why is this topic important? Uh, And I think for a lot of people, especially people with a science background, uh, this pandemic that we're going through at the moment, uh, you know, it's it's June uh, 2021 as I'm recording this, this pandemic has opened a window into into something of a um, a, a crisis situation within, within especially American society, where, you know, as much as half the nation had real trouble, uh, you know, relating to this pandemic, uh, figuring out how to relate to it. You know, people first doubted that the pandemic was real. They thought it was just a regular call or it was made up or it was just a political ploy. Uh, then um, people didn't wanna wear masks or they didn't wanna do social distancing or they didn't wanna do lockdowns. Uh, and then the, the vaccine came out and of course there's the anti-vaxxers and, and you know, medical professionals, nurses, doctors taking their sweet time getting the vaccine uh, you know, because of all the misinformation passing around. And, and I think a lot of people have had a sense that there are some real problems out there in terms of how people in general relate to science. And I think um, many people kind of coming from a more secular perspective have blamed, um, have blamed the problems and, uh, on the Christian, evangelical, conservative Christian community. So uh essentially basically it, it often seems to be people that that are, are Christian, people that are very committed to their faith. Those people seem to be the ones that have most fallen for a lot of the misinformation having to do with this with this pandemic. And 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 these issues with science, this distrust of science, affects not only the people. Who, who themselves don't don't take science seriously but affects everybody else as well because obviously like you know if half the country is not getting vaccinated or if half the country is refusing to, to wear masks, everybody else is impacted by this. So I think this pandemic has opened uh, kind of a uh, pulled the curtains back for some of the more secular leaning people out there who, who kind of feel well you know all those, all those people that you know they're not educated, Uh, they could believe whatever they want to believe, but we're going to take science seriously because we're enlightened and all this stuff. But actually, how Christians relate to science impacts everybody, not just the people themselves. So if people distrust science, it affects all of us. And now, again, the majority of secular people I know blame the evangelical community. They blame the Christian community for the general distrust in science. And I tend to agree with them. I think Christians in general have done a very bad job in educating their members uh, on how to properly relate to to the scientific process. So so I would say 90% of the fault here, if we're going to point fingers, is probably legitimately uh, attributed to the Christian community. But I want to say that there's also maybe 10% of the fault that applies to, to the scientific community as well. And what I'm going to do in this presentation is, is try to make the case that there are some problems on the other side of the equation as well. And if we corrected those problems, there's a chance that the Christian community or people in general that are skeptical of science at the moment, uh, theists in general, not just Christians, um, they might be more likely to to trust science in the future if we make certain corrections in the way we think about all, this, all these topics. And what I'm, what I'm gonna to try to argue is that a lot of times people coming at things from a scientific perspective have an unwarranted level of epistemic confidence. So what does that mean? It means that people are more confident in what they think they know than they actually have reason or warrant to be confident for. Uh, they they trust their um, ability to know facts or the, f- the reality, the truth about reality, more than they actually should, based on the way uh, human beings are able to access knowledge. So I'm going to be spending some time, kind of discussing this 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 idea of, of epistemology, you know, how do we know things? Uh, what can we know? What can we be confident about the things we know and, and all these different things and how that impacts science in general and uh, and uh, philosophy and, and so on. So um, in this presentation, I'm going to be talking about the theory of evolution, but, but that's only gonna be a subset of the greater uh, scientific paradigm uh, as a whole, but not not just evolution specifically. So yes, I will address evolution to some degree, but um, what I'm saying applies to all of science, uh, and to a much broader degree than it does just to evolution. Okay, so so what is what is some some what are some of the problems here? So so now let's let's talk specifically about evolution. Um, over the past twenty years or so, I think I've spent several tens of thousands of hours talking to different people from all over the place regarding the topic of evolution. I mean, I've had endless conversations with thousands of people out there. And what I've come to see is that almost everybody falls within several categories. And what I have here are three main categories for the people that are actually knowledgeable on the topic. They understand science, they understand evolution, They've done their research. They, they know what they're talking about. With people that, that have, are knowledgeable and understand these things can be broken down into three groups. One group is the anti-evolution theists. And these are people like creationists, uh, intelligent design people, all these all this groups that deny evolution, but that take a scientific approach to the denial of evolution. Now, of course, some of, some of you might say, no, those people are not educated. They're not really knowledgeable. They're not real scientists. But in fact, some of them are. In fact, there's thousands of them with advanced degrees in many different fields. I mean, I'm amazed sometimes at, at how wide this community of people is um, who oppose evolution and, and do so at a fairly advanced level. So there's a lot of people in this group So group number one is the anti evolution theists. On the other side, there's another group of theists, whether they're Christian or some other religion, who are pro evolution. And within the the Christian context, an example of this is this group that seems to be fairly popular called BioLogos, which is made of Christians who fully accept evolution. They, they call themselves evolutionary creationists. So they believe that God created through evolution, right? So there's an entire group of Christians out there that have no problem whatsoever with the theory of evolution. And that's a fairly large group as well. And the other group are the atheists. And by within this group, I'm including, you know, atheists, agnostics, people that are just, you know, secular that don't really think about the philosophy, theology, and so on. They don't really take those into account. I'm kind of putting everybody in that category. So who essentially, fully embrace evolution and, and, and don't consider some of the issues that some of the religious people have, okay? So we have these three groups and besides these three groups, we have a lot of people that are just uninformed. They don't know much about science. They don't know much about philosophy. They don't know much about any of these topics but they're extremely opinionated. And this is an ex- a huge group of people that you find you know all over the place. And sometimes it's not just, uh, or Christians it's even atheists that that just don't actually have the basis to know what they're talking about but they're highly opinionated about the topic uh, but most of the times, this has to do with Christians so somebody would say you know evolution is of the devil evolution is evil all this stuff because the bible tells me so they've never studied science they have no idea how science works they have no idea what the evidence is that scientists use they're all, you know they they, they couldn't make a a cogent argument for their position and yet they're still incredibly confident that they're right and everybody else is wrong. Unfortunately, because these people don't have the the foundation to have a conversation with, uh, I'm just going to dismiss this group out of the picture for now because we don't have any way to communicate and to to arrive at some conclusion by including this group in the conversation. So we're going to focus uh, within this presentation on these three groups of people, the, the educated anti-evolutionists, the educated pro-evolutionists, and, uh, and the atheists. And what I'm, what I'm gonna try to argue in this presentation is that we're at a point where these three groups have been at it, have been arguing with each other for so long that it's almost impossible to conceive of any other position besides these three groups. And I spent years, literally years, trying to find people out there to have a conversation without these topics that are, are able to move out of these three positions because I think there are problems with all three of them. And I'll explain what these problems are in a, in a second. And it, it seems almost impossible. I cannot find anybody out there who can move away from these three positions and consider other, other ways to look at the topic. So, essentially, people have, have pretty much settled within these three views, and I'm talking about all the people that have actually studied the topic thoroughly, and, and they've, they've given it, um, you know, they've put in the time to research, to study, to understand what the arguments are and all this stuff, okay? Now, what, what do I think are the problems with these three groups? Okay, let's, let's take it one by one. Um, The first one is the anti-evolution group, you know, the creationists, the intelligent designers, all this stuff. In my opinion, this group doesn't understand science, doesn't understand the nature of science, doesn't really understand the limitations of science and, and, and the alternatives and all this stuff. I'm going to spend quite a bit of time discussing this. But right now, let me let me list all three of them first. But as far as this first group, I think their biggest problem is that they don't fully understand how science works. The second group, the the bio-logos types, the pro-evolution theists, their problem is that most of them are dualists. They come at the topic of, of, um, of evolution from within a philosophical paradigm known as dualism, where they separate the material world from the immaterial world and this affects their ability to really see what exactly is taking place uh, within the scientific, scientific uh, paradigm. So uh, again, I'll come back and kind of explain this because it's not gonna make sense until I, I, I kind of work through it a little bit better. Okay, and the third group uh, are the atheists. And in my opinion, atheists are working with a bad epistemology. And I'll explain what I mean by that as well uh, in a second. So, again, I think today um, it doesn't matter who you talk to, every informed person out there is going to be in one of these three groups. And it is impossible to really have a meaningful conversation with them because if you disagree with them, they're automatically going to assume you're into one of the other categories. You've, they're going to project on you all the things that they see wrong with all this other group. So for example, if you're talking to an atheist, they're gonna automatically assume you're either in the anti-evolution TS camp or the pro-evolution TS camp, and they're gonna put all that baggage on you and they're not gonna listen to a word you're saying. And and it's gonna make it impossible to, to get anywhere in the conversation. And the same with any other group. Every group in this in, in this uh, triad here uh, seems so stuck in, 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 in their way of looking at things to the point where they cannot break away from these three categories. Uh, and unfortunately, uh, I don't know of a way to, to move past that and actually have meaningful conversations with people. Okay, so now let's look at why I think some of these things are problematic. Some of these positions are problematic. Uh, and let's start with the anti-evolution TS. Again, I think this group has some serious misunderstandings about the nature of science. In their perspective, They believe that modern science um, can be defined as methodological naturalism, which I I think is correct. But in their view, methodological naturalism is a bad thing. And they want to get rid of it. They want to find an alternative to methodological naturalism. Now, uh, you know, just really quick, as as by way of background. If you take the time to really immerse yourself in the world of the anti-evolution scientists, anti-evolution philosophers, they produce a ton of material, a ton of content, they produce a lot of scientific work. But all this work they're doing is completely ignored by the wider scientific community and essentially they just do all this stuff within their own echo chambers. So they develop this network, this ecosystem of evolution deniers, of evolution opposers, and they keep, you know, they, they go out there and they do research and they publish their findings and they do their stuff, but it all takes place within this within the, their own network, and it doesn't really affect the the rest of the scientific world because the scientific world has dismissed them as pseudoscientific, and they just live sort of in their own little world, um, and. What they've found that they could do is just bypass the general public and go directly to the churches. So basically, if the scientists, if the scientific community doesn't want to hear what they have to say and what they found, they're just going to go and talk to the church members in the various churches that are, are friendly to their point of view and present their stuff to them and sell, sell their books to them and, and give them presentations and all this stuff and entertain them as opposed to doing science the way science is usually done, which is to actually publish real research in uh, peer reviewed publications so that it could benefit the entire scientific community. Now, one of the things that's really disturbing about people like this is that they often lie about the state of evolutionary science within the wider scientific community. And you hear them tell church members that are relatively ignorant about the topic, how scientists are coming to realize that evolution doesn't work and they're coming to realize that evolution was a mistake and all this stuff when in fact if you talk to 90 percent, 99 of scientists out there nobody is coming to any conclusion such as this regardless of whether evolution actually is good or not what i'm saying here is that i'm not making a ju- value judgment on the theory of evolution i'm just saying that the majority of scientists have not lost faith in the theory of evolution are not in any way starting to realize any flaws or anything and yet time and again i talk to people i don't know where they're getting this information but they keep saying yeah you know even scientists are coming to realize evolution doesn't work that's a lie they're not somehow this group of people keeps propagating this idea that keeps keeps pushing this lie out there and I don't know what the the point is, but but it is there, it is out there. And I don't know who's doing that. I'm sure not everybody is saying this stuff, but uh, I've I've heard it time and time again. Another thing people within this group do is that they they bypass the scientific process and go straight to the courts. You know, they try to they try to go in you know in conservative uh, parts of the country, uh, and they try to you know force their their version of science on public schools, for example. So we have 2005, the famous Dover trial where um, uh, they tried to provide an alternative science book for people that had issues with the regular science book in in the public school. uh, So that kids coming from a Christian background can go and read uh, an alternative version of of the facts uh, in the library and so on. And, and you know there was a whole big trial and they and they lost and uh, there's quite an interesting story with that. But um, this 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 group this 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 uh, network of, of people that are uh, anti-evolution um, have have taken all these other approaches to dealing with the subject than than the traditional approach, which is to actually. Uh, convince the scientific community that there's a different way of looking at things. Now, I personally, the way I see this whole thing is that there's actually a very simple solution to what they're trying to do. Instead of doing all these things that they've been doing all this time, they can actually create their own version of the scientific community. So let's just say science as it's normally done, can be summarized as methodological naturalism. And let's say that all this anti-evolution scientists don't agree with methodological naturalism. They just think that MN, you know, this whole process, this, the whole scientific process, the way it's done, it's a bad process. We, we, shouldn't, we shouldn't assume naturalism in, in doing science. Okay, well, come up with a new methodology. So if you're not going to use methodological naturalism, use something else. What exactly are you going to use instead? What other methodology are you going to come up with? Figure out what your methodology is going to be. Uh, articulate this methodology. In other words, uh, write it down, uh, explain it in the most concise form or you explain how exactly you're going you're to do your science and how Uh, the natural and the supernatural are gonna be part of this, explain how all this stuff works, and then create something similar to what the regular scientific community is doing where you, you get a bunch of people or a network of people, you already have the network, you already have thousands and thousands of individuals with advanced studies, with advanced scientific backgrounds, come together and actually work towards something you know, publish your findings in your own scientific journals, but don't focus just on the theory of evolution. Focus on all of science, all of reality. And take the next three, four, five, six, seven decades and do real research using your own methodology. And over the next hundred years or so, prove to the world that your methodology is better than the normal scientific methodology. Show that you have better results, that you make predictions and your predictions are correct more often than the predictions of regular scientists. Come up with new inventions, come up with new technology. Show to the world that, hey, here's an alternative to to the way regular scientists do their science, but this alternative is working even better. So instead of methodological naturalism, we have this other methodology and it's doing really well. So maybe, just maybe, you know, the naturalistic assumptions are incorrect after all, and uh, and this methodology is better. And prove to the world that there is a, a different and a better way of doing science. Don't just fight methodological naturalism only when it comes to things that you yourself don't believe in like evolution or whatever else, fight it all in, in that respect and, and then accept the findings of this methodology in regards to everything else, right? So that I believe is a simple way that this group of people who are anti-evolution can go about doing their science if they disagree with the normal way of doing science. If they don't wanna go through all that hassle because it's a major project. I mean, you know, I don't even know how you're going to get people coming from many different theological and philosophical perspectives to agree on a methodology if it's not the naturalistic methodology. That's the one methodology that it seems people from many different perspectives can agree with. But if you're not the New that methodology, I'm, I'll be really curious to see what other methodology you could come up with so that you could build a network of people from various religious and philosophical perspectives and work together and actually build something together. I don't know how it could be done, but if you think it can be done, then do it, but don't do it just for evolution, do it for everybody else, right? If you're not gonna do that, then the alternative is to just work within the confines of regular science. And the way to think about that is to look at science as a tool. Every tool has its limitations. If you have a hammer, the hammer is great at at hammering in nails. If you turn it around and you use the fork side of it, you could pull the nails out, but it's not great to paint with. It's not great to to screw uh, uh, something in or any of that stuff because that's not what the tool was made for. Uh, The way I think of science is kind of like a metal detector. A metal detector does really good at finding metal in the sand. You know, so somebody going around the beach with a metal detector, they're gonna walk around, eventually it's gonna beep and then they're gonna dig and then they're gonna find some piece of metal, something that that got buried in the sand. But if you lost a piece of plastic, that metal detector is not gonna work. And the, the answer to that is not to say, oh, you know, that metal detector is useless, throw it away, it's not a good thing. The answer is just to understand the limitations of the tool you're using. It's good, really good at doing certain things, but it's not effective at doing other things. So just recognize that and, and learn to live with it and work within those confines, within those limitations. So again, for this group of people, and I'm not gonna spend much more time on, on this group of people, the, the one-third of my circle who are anti-evolutionists, informed anti-evolutionists, you have two solutions. Either develop your own scientific community, build around your own methodology, and then do everything, study everything in the world using your methodology and show the world that your methodology is better, or find a way to work within the confines of the present-day scientific methodology and just live with it and stop fighting it and stop uh, stop arguing with... Um, you know, trying to, trying to make exceptions within that methodology whenever it doesn't suit your beliefs, All right. So moving on, let's go to the next group. This group are the pro-evolution theists. Again, people like BioLogos, BioLogos is some kind of ministry, some kind of organization. I, I don't, I'm not too familiar with them, but they seem to, to be fairly well-known when it comes to <clears throat> Christians that accept and embrace evolution, and they believe that God used evolution to create True. Now, what I think is the problem with this group is that the majority of them are dualists. Um, for people not familiar with theology and philosophy, dualism is kind of a strange concept sometimes, which, which says that Um, As we look around us, we see a lot of material objects. The world is made of matter. It's made of uh, um, things that we can touch and feel and and our senses can perceive. But somehow this, this material side of reality is only one layer. And then there's another layer that is immaterial or maybe you could say that it's supernatural and this immaterial layer somehow holds the rest of the material stuff together. Now um, there's different ways that different groups of theists have come to think about reality and and matter the material versus the immaterial and all this stuff and I'll explain that in a second. Um, You know and and, and then there's different kind of frameworks around that as well. So you have people who are pantheists or panentheists I'll explain all this in a second, but I'm just kind of outlining it now. Uh, so you have pantheists and Panentheists. you have theists, uh, and within Theism you have Platonism, Aristotelianism and, and several other perspectives. Okay, the problem with this dualistic perspective is that it creates a kind of a buffer. Um, it, it kind of clouds one's vision so that when they evaluate the scientific process, it doesn't allow them to really see what is going on within, within science? Like what is science actually doing? What is it accomplishing as, as, the, as the process is moving on? So um, in my opinion, people that come from this perspective are usually not really seeing the science directly. They're seeing science through this lens that they have, which assumes that the world is made of this d- different components. So I'm gonna put a chart up it's kind of complicated visually, don't, don't get too, too concerned yet. Uh, give me a chance to explain it. Okay, so I know this is a, a super busy chart, so let's go piece by piece here. These are different metaphysical paradigms uh, and metaphysics basically has to do with the world behind the curtain, so to speak. You know, what is out there, you know, be, be beyond matter, beyond the visible universe, is there some other kind of reality? Is there a God, isn't there a God, is there a supernatural, is there not a supernatural and all this stuff. Okay, so here's, here are some of the possible views. One view is pantheism. <clears throat> now pantheism is simply the view that the world as we understand it, the material world, the material universe and God are one and the same. They, they're sort of overla- they're, they're overlap, uh, they're the same entity. God is somehow part of our material reality. So that's pantheism. Panentheism is similar, but the world is not the entirety of God, it's only a part of God. So uh, I have this circle here, which is a bigger circle representing God, and the world is a smaller circle that's within God. So the world itself is part of divinity, okay? Those are two views that Christians have generally rejected in the past, even though uh, in modern theology, these two views sort of made a, 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 have come back and there's some modern theologians that have adopted some of these, some of these views that um, used to be more uh, foreign to Christianity in the past. <clears throat> okay, so now the traditional Christian view is the theism view, which says that God and the world are two separate things. God created the world but created it as a separate entity from himself, right? So, you know, just picture these two things. Uh, you know, this big circle here for God, this smaller circle for the world. They're separate realities. Um, they don't overlap like they do in pantheism or panentheism. Okay, and then we have naturalism, which has the world but doesn't have God. So the world is is all there is. There is no God in it. Now, of course, there's also the some people that separate God from the supernatural. Like for example, some some sects of Buddhism don't believe in a God, but they do believe in some kind of supernatural as well. But I didn't put that in the graphic because it would complicate things even more than they already are. But just keep in mind that 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 position is there as well. Okay, so now let's look at the theism uh, perspective. Theism says that God and the world are separate but there's different kinds of theism or different assumptions made by people who do accept this theistic paradigm. So some, of, some perspectives say that the world is not just one thing, it's not just a material uh, thing, but it's actually composed of, of a material reality and an immaterial reality, or a natural reality and a supernatural reality. And there's different ways that happen. So Platonism, and, and this, this graphical representation probably isn't the best one, but Platonism has um, separates matter from you know the immaterial forms or the immaterial reality in some way. It's usually that the immaterial is the the real reality and and the the material the the stuff we can feel and touch and sm- smell and see uh, it's only like a, a shadow representation of the real reality which is the immaterial now. Uh, Aristotelianism kind of flips that around and says, no, uh, the world is material, but then it has a supernatural essence. There, there's like a uh, something within the material that kind of holds it together. So it's still dualistic. It's still two separate types of reality or two different kinds of reality, but Aristotelianism kind of uh, puts the supernatural as the thing that holds all the natural things in place. Uh, it, it keeps matter together okay there's another view called idealism which which says you know the material reality doesn't exist it's all supernatural it's all immaterial but it's just us that perceive it as material but it, it's not actually there so that's that's another perspective and finally there's a perspective that almost nobody holds um, or it's not well known and i call it here cosmic monism and it's still within the theist's Uh, paradigm. So in this perspective, basically, the world is natural, it's material, and there's no supernatural component to it, like there is in Platonism, or Aristotelianism, but there there is a God as well. So God created the world as one entity, he created the cosmos as one thing, as opposed to it having multiple layers. Okay, so what I'm gonna argue here is that all of these perspectives, so pantheism, panentheism, uh, any of these dualistic theist forms like uh, Platonism, Aristotelianism, Idealism, all of those things get in the way of our ability to really understand how science functions. And a lot of Christians come from this metaphysical perspectives and, and it's almost like they have these glasses on that get foggy because of their dualistic lens. And it keeps them from really thinking through how science actually works. So I've crossed out pretty much every view here, except the, the, this cosmic monism, I called it, this is a name I made up because I haven't found any actual official name for it. And, and the naturalist perspective, which is the way science works. So basically here's the difference. Naturalism says there is no God and the world is just one thing. There's no supernatural to the world. It's just one material universe. And this non-dualistic cosmic theism, non-dualistic cosmos theism says there is a God, but the world is exactly the same as the naturalist envision it. So the world is not dualistic or instead of the world, maybe I should have said the universe or the cosmos or however we wanna label these. It's really hard to, to explain the stuff adequately because as you move from science to philosophy to theology, the exact same words have different definitions and it gets really confusing. But what I'm saying here is this, that uh, if we look at how atheists, naturalistic atheists think about reality, picture the, look at the reality the way they think about it. They envision it, they envision the universe as being uh, this completely material thing that has been developed through, through uh, naturalistic processes from beginning to end, all this stuff. Um, and there's no God in the picture, there's no supernatural. Now, this the second position here says, no, there is a God in the picture. God did create the universe, but the universe itself is pretty much the way the, the, the naturalists see it. It doesn't have this extra layer of supernatural uh, the way Plato, Aristotle, and others believed it had it. Um, it's just one entity. It's, it's, it's material. The, the world or the cosmos is a purely material entity. Now, what I'm trying to tell people here, and I'm, I'm speaking specifically to those Christians who come from this any of those dualistic perspectives I mentioned, I'm not trying to convince them to change their religion or to change their philosophy or their metaphysics or anything. What I'm trying to tell them is that if they want to evaluate science properly, they need to think of the world the way scientists think of the world when they do their science. If they allow for this dualistic lens, it ends up creating this buffer that doesn't allow them to really see what is going on in the scientific process, right? Uh, Here's, here's uh, a little bit of how this buffer actually works in practical, in a practical sense. If we go back, you know, 500 years, 1,000 years in time, before modern science. um, The tendency of people to look at the world through a dualistic lens, it actually ended up sometimes preventing them from progressing scientifically, because um, if they were trying to figure out how something works you know why is it that the planets are you know moving this way and not that way why is it that them, they have this shape versus that shape why is it that objects fall to the ground all these different things when they tried to to work through this question scientifically <clears throat> whenever they hit a roadblock they just told themselves well The reason we can't explain it is because the immaterial side of it, the immaterial layer, the the supernatural layer is the one that's responsible. It's the one that makes things work the way they do. So they stopped pressing forward. They stopped trying to analyze the question because they blamed it on the the immaterial layer of reality. Now, as history progressed and we, we get to the enlightenment and we get to the scientific revolution, people dismissed that that dualistic paradigm and said, no, let's look at things from a naturalistic perspective. And whenever they hit a roadblock and they couldn't figure out how something works, they just said, no, let's keep digging. Let's keep digging and look look for a natural explanation. And over time they found it and science started making progress a lot faster because they didn't get to this sort of roadblocks and then gave up by just saying, oh, uh, it's, the, it's the essence, the supernatural essence of the thing that's causing this effect. So we cannot figure out how it works because we don't have access to it, right? So before science made its progress, um, dualism ended up kind of holding people back from actually digging deeper and finding answers to a lot of the scientific questions. But at the same time, now that science has already made quite a bit of progress, dualism is, is coming from the other, per, the other side of the issue and saying, oh, I'm totally okay with what science has discovered so far because I believe in this, in this second layer of reality. And, um, you know, God is in this second layer here. So I don't need to, I don't need an explanation. I don't need to evaluate and see if science made any mistakes along the way because um, everything on the surface could have happened naturally and God could still be within the, within the immaterial side of reality. So um, I, I'm not even sure if if, I'm, I'm, if the way I'm explaining this is clear, but what I'm saying is that dualism ends up having this, creating this buffer before scientific discoveries take place and after scientific discoveries take place so that it it just accommodates both sides of the question. So on one side, it prevents people from digging deeper to to do the science. On the other side, it allows them to embrace whatever naturalistic scientists discovered and say, oh yeah, I I could totally make sense of that. I can totally buy into that discovery because my dualism allows me to embrace it without any kind of problems. So um, Christians coming from this dualistic perspective, uh, you know, people like like those come, those from uh, Biologos and other other organizations, they have no problem just wholesale embracing everything that scientists discover, because um, they have this dualistic approach to things that just allows them to. To, to buy into whatever without really questioning it because um, they have this, this other, other layer to reality in their minds as they evaluate things. So again, <clears throat> um, what I'm telling people, I'm not trying to convince people to change their beliefs about reality, to change their metaphysics, to change their theological perspectives. All I'm saying is that we need to look at the scientific process in the way that it actually works. So when scientists do science, they don't think of the world as dualistic. They think of the world as fully natural. And they come up with their hypothesis, they make their predictions and they do their experiments based on a perspective of reality, based on a metaphysical perspective that is naturalistic. So we need to think about science from that lens. And if we're going to allow God in the picture, then God needs to be separated from that naturalistic reality. And we need to think of it like a mechanism. So so basically, the the atheist, the atheistic naturalist, looks at the world like like a machinery that basically built itself, while the theist should look at the world as the same machinery, except that it was built by somebody. The minute we put that extra... Uh, dualistic layer to reality in there, it skews our perspective on everything else, and we cannot really evaluate how the machinery works because we keep looking at things from this dualistic perspective. I don't know if that made full, total sense or not. Um, I'm not even sure how, how to explain it better, but all I'm saying is that as long as um, Christians look at science through a dualistic lens, <clears throat> they're going to miss some things that they would not miss otherwise. And I'm going to talk about that for the rest of this presentation. OK, so now um, we're going to look at group number three. So we discussed group number one, the anti-evolution TS. This is group number two, the pro-evolution TIS. And now we're going to talk about the atheists. Now, I know this is a super long presentation I apologize, but I thought it it might be simpler just to put everything into one thing instead of creating multiple episodes. Uh, So it is what it is. I hope people have the patience to listen. All right, so now I said that the third group is atheists and and anybody else kind of, it's kind of like a big picture label, you know, atheists, agnostics, secular skeptics, people that just don't care about anything else except science, whatever, everybody who, I kind of put everybody in, into that same group. And what I said about this group is that they have a bad epistemology. And, and there's, there's, there's many different reasons for this. And I'm gonna to try to walk through most of the more popular ones, but there's, there's probably a, a lot more that needs to be said and, and it would take forever to, to work and deal with each one in this presentation. So here are some of the main ones. <clears throat> okay, one of, the, one of the most common things you hear atheists say is look, um, I'm an atheist and an atheist, atheism is not a thing in itself. It's basically lack of belief in a claim that somebody else is making. So the theist is the one that makes the claim. It's their responsibility because whoever makes a claim has the responsibility to prove their claim. It's their responsibility to provide compelling evidence haven't provided sufficiently compelling evidence for the existence of God so then it's perfectly natural for me to remain an atheist because I'm not taking a position in being atheist I'm just refusing to buy into somebody else's position that hasn't been adequately supported okay so that's that's one way to make the to make their that atheists make that argument Uh, another way to do it is to say look the naturalist perspective we already know that's real we already know the world exists, the material world is there, material reality is there. If there is something beyond that, that needs to be proven. Naturalism is the default and anything else, <clears throat> we need some some reason to, to consider any other possibility and until that reason is provided, it's perfectly reasonable for us to remain uh, naturalists in our, our view of the world, okay? So those are two two ways that atheists approach this thing. And unfortunately, those are not good ways to think about reality. Rather, we, we should think about it from, from what we actually know that already exists. So we look at the world, we know that we exist, we know that the universe exists. You know, if we, if we go beyond that, if we go into any of the Cartesian stuff about... Um, you know, I think therefore I am and, and all the other stuff. We have no way to prove it. It gets, it gets, it, it, we, we end up philosophically at a pretty bad place, but let's agree. And I, you know, atheists, atheists, and everybody else uh, seems to agree, or at least everybody that's interested in science agrees that, you know humanity exists, the, the world around us exists, the universe exists. These are the things we know to be true. These things exist. So the next question is, how did they get here? And the answer is, we don't actually know. There isn't a default position. Uh, We cannot say the default position is that they got here through natural processes. We don't actually know that happened. It could be that they got here through natural processes or they got here through some kind of supernatural process. We don't don't know. And we cannot say one is more plausible than the other because we have no way of, of making that argument. So the default position is not naturalism the default position is we don't know how we got here. We know that we're here, we know that we exist, we know that the universe exists, matter exists, planets, uh, constellations, all this stuff, they all exist, they're out there, there's a whole universe out there, we know that it's there, we don't know how we got here. And there isn't one possibility that's more plausible than the other. Okay, so uh, then, you know, one of the things, um, Uh, atheists might say at this point and say well you know if you say well uh if the universe didn't get here through naturalistic processes um how do we know which god created is it your god is it the god of uh, uh, the muslims is it thor is it some other god is it the flying spaghetti monster how do we know which which god that is not relevant here because we're looking at the world itself and we're saying we're asking the question, did this thing, this universe that, that we can see, that we, we, we know exists, did it get here through natural processes, or was there something else needed to make it get here? Whether it, this something else was some supernatural force, whether it was some kind of god that is like a, an intelligent entity, whether this god was this you know the god of the Jews or the god of the Muslims or the god of the Hindus or many gods, that doesn't matter. What matters is, how did this get here? Did it get here by itself? Or did it get here by some mechanism, by some, some intelligent entity that made it happen? Um, so you could probably break it down into two, three possibilities. Or you could say, okay, here's two options. Was it, was it a natural development? Or, a, or was, there, was the supernatural somehow involved? So kind of break it into two options, one or the other. If it was supernatural, was it an intelligent entity or was it just some kind of force, some kind of uh, thing that just maybe nudged it, uh, nudged the natural processes and then they kind of took off on their own after that. Uh, So those are kind of the three main categories, uh, natural, supernatural, or or a supernatural mind. And the difference is that if you're just dealing with a force, then, you know, it's just some kind of random... um, thing that, that kind of moved the process along, got it going or maybe pushed it in, in some direction and then, and then the natural processes took over from there and developed the rest of the universe. But if it's a mind, a mind could actually engineer the thing. So, you know, if we think about how we build complicated stuff, you know, you have uh, engineers building bridges and, you know, building cars, computers software, all this stuff, So there's a a more complex process involved if we're dealing with a mind versus dealing with a force. But those are kind of the main options. And we don't have a way to say, this one is more likely than the other one. Now, sometimes when I talk to atheists, I use kind of an analogy because sometimes it it makes a little more sense uh, to them just because of the fact uh, of, of their aversion to the whole concept of God and the supernatural. So here's another way to think about this. Okay, let's assume for a second <clears throat> that naturalists are correct. A- atheists are correct, naturalists are correct. The world is entirely natural. Uh, it began somehow on its own and it started developing over time. And after billions of years, you know, it got to the place where it is today. You know, evolution happened eventually human beings evolved and we're self-aware and we're starting to ask questions about how it all got here and all this stuff. This entire thing is exactly the way atheists believe it happened. Okay, let's just assume that's correct, right? At some point, chances are we're gonna get advanced enough to where we can replicate this whole thing within a computer simulation. So we could create a computer uh, environment that has the same kind of fundamental laws of physics like the real world, you know? So the uh, gravity, the different electromagnetic forces, nuclear, strong nuclear, weak nuclear, all these different forces in physics, we can can actually replicate those within a simulated computer environment. And once we have all the, the laws and forces in place we can simulate something like the Big Bang and and let this virtual universe develop and over time let it develop planets and everything else. And and then on some of those planets, maybe the the conditions are are right for evolution to take place. And over time that could end up, you know, developing all the way to intelligent organisms that are gonna start asking questions about how they got there, right? Because if, this already happened once, that means logically speaking, if we get in, if it advanced enough to understand how it happened, we should be able to replicate the whole thing, okay? So the question is, how do we know that this world we are in is the primary reality or is some kind of secondary or tertiary reality that exists virtually uh, within some you know, computer system or something that somebody developed, right? So if you don't want to think about god or the supernatural then just think of it in terms of primary versus secondary or tertiary whatever reality and the difference is that if you're living in the primary reality the entire thing has to have developed from beginning to end on its own so naturalism would have to be correct for the primary reality but a secondary reality and any subsequent realities after that because you know you could you have the primary reality and then you could replicate it into a computer system. And then and then if that reality gets advanced enough they could replicate that in a computer system and so on. And you could go on for infinity really. But uh, a secondary reality doesn't have to be fully on its own. And it, obviously it's not gonna be on its own because this, the substrate is built within a computer system. So I don't know, Some for some atheists I, I talked to Thinking about this question from that perspective, it's a little easier because they don't have to think about God or or any kind of supernatural and so on. But the point is that we know we exist. We know the universe exists. We don't actually know how we got here. We cannot take it for granted or take it as the default that we got here through naturalistic processes. The problem is the scientific methodology assumes that that's the case. And that's not a bad thing, but we gotta find a way to keep those two things in balance in our mind. On the one hand, philosophically speaking, we don't know how we really got here. We don't know if we're a product of natural processes or if um, there's some, some kind of supernatural involved in this whole thing. But methodologically speaking, we have we have kind of a necessity, and I'll talk about this in a little bit, where we need to assume reality is naturalistic because otherwise the whole scientific process kind of breaks down. And and I'll get to that in a second. So we got to find a way to, to think about what we actually know about reality and what we have to assume for our methodology to work. And we can't get lost in that because when we get lost in that, we end up um assuming a level of confidence in our in our view of reality that's that's greater than what's warranted. So we, we we're more confident about what we know than we actually should be, if we don't keep that proper balance. Okay, so let's keep going. These are some of the arguments that atheists use to argue f- that the naturalistic perspective is more probable. Okay, so let's move on. Uh, another one is OCAM's razor. So Basically, Orkham's razor says, go with the simplest explanation. The problem with with, with the Orkham's razor argument is that this is a great argument from a practical perspective, but it it doesn't have anything to, it doesn't say anything about what reality is actually like. So for example, if we we tested a hundred different scientific experiments and we ask the the scientists doing those, you know, all the different experiments are done by different scientists. And we ask each scientist to use OCAM's razor as they're working through the, whatever problems they're trying to solve. Doing that is a good idea because um, it allows them to take the shortest route. So in other words, they they come come up with the simplest hypothesis. And if that one doesn't work, then they go to the next simplest one and they move on. And it makes sense to take this this pathway because if, if you start with a complicated one and that doesn't work, you're doing all this extra work for nothing. Start with the simplest and then move on from there. But just because you do that doesn't mean that the majority of the times using Occam's razor gives you the right conclusion. No, the conclusion or the, the solution might be something else. But practically speaking, it makes sense to, to take the, the the route which tells you, okay, try the simplest solution first. So again, here's a, there's a difference between what makes sense practically and what actually is there in reality. Um, so this, this is somewhat similar to the previous point. Okay. Now, other atheists will say, no, no, um, um, naturalism is not the default position, naturalism is not uh, something that is more probable uh, a priori than than, uh, some of the other options, but it's something that seems to be more likely based on where we are in our scientific progress. So in other words maybe 200 years ago the likelihood of naturalism being correct was just as great as the likelihood of supernaturalism being correct. But after all the scientific progress we've made over the past 200 years, uh, and and we we kept finding natural explanations for all these different things that people used to assume uh, had supernatural explanations, now it's safe to say, well, we're probably gonna find natural explanations for everything else as well, all the way to the end, to the point where we don't need a supernatural at all. And I wanna say, no, that's not a reasonable conclusion. Um, So think of it this way. When we build stuff, we build things with different levels of um, subsequent interference on our part. So for example, let's say I build a bike. If I build a bike and I wanna use the bike to get from home to work every day, then not only do I need a bike, but I need to actually pedal to get myself from where I am to, to from my house to my work. So I have I have built a device that is capable of moving from point A to point B, but it needs constant input on my part. It doesn't just do it by itself. So I I, I build a bike, I get on the bike, and I have to pedal. And after 20 minutes of riding, I eventually get to my destination. Okay. All right, but but I don't have to, I don't have to, I'm not forced to only build a device like a bike. I could say, no, I don't want to do that. put that much effort. I want to put the effort in the beginning to build the device and I want the device to be able to to take me there on its own after that. So what do I do? I build a motorbike, right? I put an engine on it, I put gas in it and then I don't have to pedal. I I get on the bike and I turn it on and it takes me from my home to my work uh, without me constantly putting more effort besides the creative effort for to get me from where i started to where i'm going okay but then i say well still i don't just i don't want to even put the effort into building the bike that i'm putting i don't want to put the effort into building the, the motor and, and all this other stuff i want to build something that will build the bike for me the motorcycle for me Okay, so I create like a a factory or I create some kind of robot. And this robot, whenever I need a new device, it builds it for me, right. So in other words, the the point here is that the creative process can be at any step along this this pathway. So if we imagine a line. uh, Here at the bottom where I have um, divine interference. You could replace divine with, with any kind of any other, any other kind of creator entity, right? So you have this uh, this creator, and you look at the universe, and you could say, "Well, how would a creator create this universe?" Well, the creator could be really hands-on because maybe the creator really likes to to get involved and and really participate within the universe that, that he created. So maybe um, he comes in and, 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 you know, makes the rainfall and, and makes the, you know, causes earthquakes and, and storms and winds and all this stuff whenever he feels like it because he wants to participate or he could make all that stuff happen automatically. And and then you could say, well, what about how things developed, developed through natural processes? You know, like for example, planets are the result of gravitational forces and centrifugal, centrifugal forces and all this stuff. Well, yeah, maybe the creator actually wanted to, to create things through that process. So we, don't, we can't assume that if a creator exists, the creator would, would have to have created things very hands-on kind of like this, this bike I described earlier where he's constantly having to, to keep interfering and to keep, keep being involved Uh, And because we realize that reality isn't like that, that somehow that proves that there was no creation process. In fact, the naturalist assumes that there's zero outside interference. So automatically, what he's saying is that this entire thing could have developed from beginning to end on its own, which means that if there was outside interference, like if a creator or God, were, or maybe there's a primary reality and we're in the secondary reality, if this creator entity did only a tiny, tiny bit, the naturalist already has admitted that everything else could happen on its own. But if that tiny, tiny bit, just maybe just got the thing started, maybe just created the, the, the setting or the substrate or created the environment and everything else unfolded on its own, that's still a creative process that's different from naturalism, okay? So in other words, just because people used to assume certain things a hundred, to hundred, a thousand years ago about reality being uh, a combination of natural and supernatural forces. And now today science has found uh, natural explanations for all those different things it doesn't prove anything it doesn't prove that the world is more likely to have been uh, to be n- a natural reality as opposed to a, uh, a creator reality because we don't know how the creator would have gone about the creative process so there is no additional probability today as a result of scientific findings that you know than there was a hundred years ago we simply don't know we don't know uh, if if there is a God involved, we don't know how involved this God was, but as long as uh, this, the God or the creator or whatever you wanna call it, did something to get this process going, then it's not a naturalistic process and, and it would not have happened on its own. So we gotta take that into account. So anyway, the point of all this is that atheists today Secular people in general, people that, that do their science without thinking about all these other elements, they're making assumptions about reality and they're, they're making assumptions about epistemology that are bad. In other words, they have no basis to, to decide that one perspective is more probable than the other. There, there's no basis to say that naturalism, which means that the entire thing from beginning to end Happen happen through completely materialistic, naturalistic processes. That that is more plausible than the fact than the idea that it could have been created or that there was some kind of supernatural element involved in this thing. There's no way to know that. We know that we exist. We know that there is a reality out there. That there's a universe out there. We know that this thing's got here somehow, but we don't actually know if they got here on their own or if they got here with somebody's help. So philosophically speaking, we have to start from this position of neutrality where we don't actually know which option is more plausible because there's no way to prove it. There's no way to argue that one is more likely than the other. We just have no way of knowing. Okay, so given Mm -hmm. that we don't know which one is more likely, um, we have to figure out what to do with the fact that science works with the assumption that natural the naturalistic paradigm is the correct one all right so let's let's keep going through this now for most atheists today the idea is that the way they look at it is to say that naturalism is provisional so basically um you know it's, they think to themselves kind of like this you know i think the i think the world is the universe is, has developed natu- through naturalistic processes, and I don't have any good reason to think otherwise. And until somebody gives me a good reason to think otherwise, I'm, could, I'm going to continue to assume that naturalism is the correct paradigm, and that's what actually happened. And and this is why methodological naturalism, which is science, it's how science functions. This is why it works. Science works because. Reality is in fact naturalistic or it's very likely naturalistic. Of course, again, there's no way to know that. We can't assume that. There's no basis for that assumption. The probabilities are equal that the you know naturalism is correct, supernaturalism is correct, theism is correct, any of those. We have no way of knowing uh, which probability is correct. All right, so what I'm gonna say then is if we allow for the fact that there's, there's multiple options here and that the probabilities uh, are fairly equal, like we don't have a way to know which is correct, that if in fact, naturalism is not correct, the scientific methodology will have a bias towards naturalism. It will produce false negatives or false positives um, because science works under a set of naturalistic assumptions, and those assumptions will will cause it to to have kind of a skewed um, direction when it comes to choosing between these two options. So, you know, if we give equal probability to both options, naturalism versus supernaturalism, science will tend to go towards naturalism even if the other one is correct. All right. Um, Now, a a lot of times uh, this is another another way that atheists kind of confuse themselves because they'll say, well, no, uh, methodological naturalism can work with the supernatural just fine. So for example, they'll say, hey, um, let's imagine God exists and let's let's imagine um, intercessory prayer works, right? we can create scientific experiments and demonstrate that intercessory prayer works. So the the scientific methodology can do just fine when it comes to the supernatural. So this whole notion that um, science is anti-supernatural or science cannot detect the supernatural, it's it's hogwash because um, if, if, if the supernatural really was there, science would be able to see it, science would be able to detect it all you have to do is, is create a double blind, randomized study with, with, with a large sample size, with a bunch of people doing intercessory prayer or doing the rosaries or doing their, whatever it is they're doing, their rituals. And if those things really worked, then science should be able to figure it out that it works and, and, and uh, um, there shouldn't be any problem. But this whole argument assumes that you're dealing with an interventionist god with a god that steps into modern reality and it assumes that these interventions can be placed under experimental conditions that we're going to discuss in a second but let's think of it from another angle let's think of it in terms of things that happened supposedly at some point in the past so uh, if we think about the universe from from the very beginning the the time when it first began all the way to the present, um, what if divine interference didn't happen now? It happened way back then and made the, the development of the universe possible. Okay, so let's take something um, that scientists don't currently have an answer for. And I'm not saying they might not ever have an answer for it. Maybe in another five, 10 years, somebody will figure out how to explain abiogenesis. Abiogenesis, <clears throat> is the development of life from non-life. Because obviously at some point, if the naturalistic paradigm is correct, at some point you have non-living things and somehow living things emerge from the non-living things. The whole process is called the biogenesis. And let's assume the first living things didn't just emerge on their own from non-living things. Let's assume that God stepped in and made that happen. Like there was some kind of miracle, some kind of supernatural thing, supernatural thing that God did or somebody else did and, and, and brought the first living things into existence. How would science detect that? What scientific process would we use to figure out whether something that happened billions of years ago, according to, to the, the scientific paradigm, how would we figure out that it happened uh, through divine interference, as opposed to as a result of natural processes, we don't we don't have a way to do it. Okay, so yeah, sure, science works great if you could take something that's supernatural and if you could stick it under experimental conditions today and test it out, and and then yeah, you could say yeah, sure, super that supernatural works just fine, and and it can be demonstrated. But what we're talking about here is. How, the, how did all of this reality that we, we see around us come to exist? And that means that according to the naturalistic paradigm, all this stuff happened through natural processes from its very beginning all the way to the present. But if, if there was interference at some point along the way, if, if God stepped in at some point and made something happen that would not have happened without that interference, how would science find that? How would it discover? How would it, how would it know? What what tests or what scientific process would you use to, to determine that? All right, so I, I'm going to change gears just for a second, even though this is kind of similar to what we were talking about earlier, but I, I like to use this example <clears throat> because in my opinion or from, from my limited perspective, this feels to me like, like uh, the ideal scientific conditions. So um, I use this example because it gives people a chance, especially people that are not familiar, as familiar with the scientific process. It gives them a chance to look at science and kind of understand why things are done the way they're done and why science, um, why you can have confidence in science, why, why it works because it's very rigorous because it goes through all these different steps to determine if something works or not. Okay. so. Uh, let's say scientists are trying to determine if a particular medication is effective or it's not effective, right? So there's, there's a, a long series of steps that, that under ideal circumstances, scientists go through to try to make sure that, that their results are valid and they're not just guessing. Okay, so one, one of the first things they do is they try to work with a large sample size. So if they're gonna test their medicine, they're not gonna test it on one person or two people or five people or even 10 people. They're gonna to try to work with hundreds of people, thousands of people if possible to get a very wide sample size and to see, uh, to, to collect data on many different types of individuals uh, in many different types of situations. So, so the first step is large sample size. Once they have their sample size, they break it into Uh, two groups and one of the groups becomes the control group. So the control group doesn't get the medication and the the experimental group gets the medication. And that way there's a comparison to see what the difference is uh, because sometimes people just naturally get better on their own. So if the control group is doing just as well as the experimental group, then then the medicine is not really doing anything, right? So they, they break it into two groups. Um, the control group gets a placebo pill or gets a sugar pill that's very similar to the, to the medication the other group is getting so that people cannot tell which is which. Because sometimes just taking a, a placebo pill and telling yourself that you're getting a medicine affects you psychologically enough to, to start actually getting better because your mind is uh, telling your body that you know you're taking something to make you feel better. So scientists wanna make sure that this medicine actually works and it's not just the placebo effect, right? Okay, so now that you have the placebo, you set the whole thing up to be double-blind, which means that uh, the doctors, the nurses, the people that are administering the medication, the patients, nobody knows who's getting the, the real pill and who's getting the placebo. Now, in real life, it doesn't always work because sometimes the people that take the medication can feel immediately fill stuff like sometimes they get sick or sometimes stuff happens and people know like oh you must have the real medicine while I have the sugar pill but I'm talking about ideal circumstances here under ideal circumstances they try to set things up so they're so the whole experiment is double blind and people do not know which group they're in if they're taking the real medicine or the the fake medicine now even the process of of giving the medicine to the patient is randomized uh, because they don't want anything to interfere with with the data. So, you know, they might put it into a computer and the computer will will assign numbers to patients and assign medicines to the patients uh, on a completely random schedule. So that not only nobody knows who's getting what, but the the choice as to who gets which one is, is left entirely to chance so that there isn't some kind of accidental selection of one group over another and, and that ends up uh, affecting the results. <clears throat> all right, so once you've done all this stuff, you do data collection, you carefully get the results, you look for recovery rates, you know, is, is the temperature dropping? Is, are the symptoms going away? How fast are they going away? All this stuff, whatever the situation is, you carefully collect the data Then you run the data through a a statistical analysis process where you check to see if the results are meaningful. Because if if the people taking the medicine are just slightly better than the people not taking the medicine, then then the medicine isn't doing a whole lot. So you you take your numbers, your data, and again, we're dealing with with thousands of patients with large amounts of data and you put into the statistical um, analysis program and then you try to determine like, hey, is this stuff really working? Uh, is, there, is there a noticeable difference in results? Okay, once you do that, um, you wanna have the whole thing, you, you, want, uh, <clears throat> you want your experiment to be reproduced by somebody else under a different setting um, so that you know, they, they look at what you did and, and then they reproduce it their own way to see if you still get the same benefits and the same results. And then you publish your results in peer-reviewed publications where you know, people can, and can look at your work, they can look at your data, review it again, uh, look at it from different perspectives, and it can inform future scientists so that, so that they can decide what they're gonna study next and, and it will guide for the research. So anyway, the point of this whole thing is that um, scientists go through this very rigorous process to get the results under ideal conditions. Unfortunately, a lot of times in real life, not all the stuff is possible. So sometimes we're dealing with things that, um, you know, we're studying things that are really small, or they're really far away, or they happened long in the past, or or they're things that that happen randomly or happen. Uh, They're not reproducible for whatever reason. They, you know, events happen here and there, and we never know when they're going to happen. So we cannot uh, set up our experimental conditions just right and all this stuff. So real life is a lot messier than these ideal conditions. But science tries to come as close to this as possible so that it could get the best possible results. All right. Now, looking at the previous page with the the ideal experimental conditions, imagine, increasing our sample size. So uh, this this vertical axis here at the bottom of the axis um, you have a, a, a very small sample size like one individual and then as you go higher and higher you increase your sample size to um, you know 100, 200, 500, 1000, 10,000 and so on. Now the more you increase your sample size the more the certainty of the results increases. So when your sample size is really small, even if you get good results, it doesn't mean that your medicine actually works. Um, it could just be a coincidence. It could just, you, you could just have gotten lucky or you have you happen to have picked the very people that the medicine works with when in fact, other people uh, are not really affected by So one So in this chart, what I'm trying to say is that um, <clears throat> when we're doing science, uh, as we get more and more data, the level of certainty we have in any given conclusion increases. And then there's there's this kind of curve where at the beginning, uh, there's relative uncertainty, but as you continue to collect data, you tend to get to a place towards the middle of this uh, curve where um, you can be fairly confident in your conclusions. And then as you continue to get more and more data that confirms your conclusions, you become more and more confident, even though you could never be 100% confident in science. You know, you could always, you know, <clears throat> who knows what will happen in the future that might um, maybe throw off your, your results in some, in some respect. But, but as your data increases, as you get more and more results confirming your conclusion, the, the more confidence you have. Okay. So why does all this stuff matter for what I'm saying? Now, uh, when we, when we work with, uh, you know, when you're doing science and you're, you're, you're trying to determine all these different aspects of reality, how did this happen? How did this get here? How did this occur? Um, we tend to focus on the natural side of things. So we say, Okay, <clears throat> for example, you know, let, let's go back to a biogenesis. How did the first living organisms come to exist? How did they emerge from non-living um, elements? So do people come up with the, with a the supernatural? Do scientists come up with a supernatural hypothesis? No, they don't say, well, I think God is the, the one that made the first living cells. No, we don't, scientists don't say that they start with a natural hypothesis. They say, okay, maybe the way it happened is uh, this particular compounds formed because of certain situations. And then um, maybe they they came together under this condition and so on. So so they come up with a natural hypothesis. They make predictions based on the hypothesis. And then they set up their experiments and they try to see if the experiments confirm those predictions. If the predictions are confirmed, um, they say, "Okay, so let's let's go back and, and do more research and, and collect more data." And as they go through the cycle, their their confidence level increases more and more. If their predictions are not confirmed, then they say, "Okay, maybe the the hypothesis was bad. Maybe the predictions were off. Let's go back to the beginning and, and tweak our hypothesis. Let's let's come up with some other some other way to to." to think about this or maybe some other solution to the problem. Now, theoretically speaking, if somebody followed this process over and over again for any given given question, and let's say they found a way to go through every possible naturalistic hypothesis and none of them worked, then the only logical conclusion would be to say, okay, so maybe this thing happens supernaturally. So in, in other words, Given the current scientific methodology, the only way we would ever arrive at a supernatural conclusion is if we somehow eliminated all the naturalistic uh, uh, hypotheses, naturalistic um, means by which that that thing could have happened naturally. So it would, it would have to be a process of elimination, and and there's not really a way around it because. If you were gonna come up with a supernaturalistic hypothesis, what would the hypothesis be? Like, would you say, okay, you know, a happened because God created it. How would you test that? What predictions would you make? How how do we even know how a supernatural entity decided to supernaturally create something? We would have no idea how this would happen because we we don't know anything about the supernatural. So we have no way of testing the hypothesis. And essentially we're stuck if we say <clears throat> god did it then that's the end of the the inquiry process on the other side the other hand if we say no let's look for naturalistic hypothesis then at least we have something to work with you know we can uh <clears throat> we can come up with some some possible solution and then uh, we can think about how that solution would work and and then go from there so here's an example for for those that might not be know familiar with the whole scientific thought process here's an example that i use sometimes i say okay imagine let's say i left my house one morning early in the morning and i i pass on this road that i always pass from my house and i find a boulder in the middle of the road okay so i tell myself okay how did this boulder get here now i look around me and i see that there's a hill a hill nearby right so i say okay um, my hypothesis is that this boulder was at the top of that hill and somehow during the night it got notched, either pushed by somebody or there was an earthquake or something, and the thing rolled down the hill and landed in the middle of the street, okay? That's a naturalistic hypothesis. I'm just looking for a natural explanation. What can I do now that I have my hypothesis? Well, I can stop my car, get out, and I can go to the hill and and... and Look at the pathway this boulder would have had to take to roll down the hill, and I could look for evidence. You know, maybe there's there's a, a scrapes in the ground. Maybe the vegetation is broken. Maybe if I climb up to the top of the hill, there's a place where this boulder used to sit. You know, there's like a hole in the ground or um, some something where the boulder used to be, and I can tell that the boulder was there. And then I could see it. I could see the effects of it rolling down the hill. So I have my hypothesis. I'm making my hypothesis make certain predictions, and then I could go and test those predictions. That's the advantage of working with a naturalistic hypothesis. If I said, if on the other hand I said, no, uh, some kind of supernatural entity put this thing here, then what exactly would I predict based on that? Like, did the did the supernatural entity uh, miraculously create this out of thin air? Did it take it from somewhere else and put it here? Uh, how, what would I say? What prediction would I make from, a, you know, regarding a supernatural um, thing? And like, how would, I, how would I even test that? How would I go about thinking about that? I have no, no idea because I, I, I cannot say anything about the supernatural. The natural, I understand. I understand how this world works. I understand how the material world works. I don't know anything about the supernatural, so I cannot do anything with that. So I'm I'm basically stuck. So in this sense, the scientific process works because it looks for natural explanations to natural questions. But that is just the methodology we're using. It doesn't mean that that's what actually happened we don't know what actually happened because we don't know if a God was involved in this whole thing or not. We don't have any way to go back in time and figure, figure out what actually happened. So we're kind of in this, um, in this kind of conflict between a reality that we don't really know how it is and a methodology that, that sort of forces us to take the natural route. All right <clears throat> now, let's let's apply this to evolution a little bit, and then we'll go back to, to the previous discussion. Now, a lot of times people will say, "Well, evolution as a theory is a fact." Okay, you know, evolution is a fact. End of story. Well, the problem with that is that evolution is not one thing. It's not <clears throat> like one single claim, and that claim has been proven correct, and it's, it's the end. No evolution is kind of like this this model here that I've drawn and yeah it's a bit weird looking but it's it's a model made of many many different components all of them having their own independent claims and for the whole thing to be a fact means that every single one of those components is a fact okay so evolution is not a single concept but a large collection of many many different types, types of claims uh, spanning biology and genetics and, uh, you know, uh, fossils and all these different things, all these different elements, physics, different, different, <clears throat> different disciplines working together, addressing hundreds and thousands of different questions and coming up with answers to those questions. So um, you cannot look at it as one single thing. It's, it's a collection of multiple, many different elements. All of this are needed for this thing to work. So for for evolution to be true, to be a fact as a whole, that means all its independent components, all all the components that form this whole uh, need to be, be, uh, to function properly, so to be correct. Uh, The problem is we don't know for a fact that all these components are correct. We have varying degrees of certainty for each one. um, we talked about abiogenesis before. Abiogenesis is not part of the theory of evolution. It's, it's c- considered a different discipline, but once abiogenesis happens, so basically the only thing we have at one point in history, according to the <clears throat> theory of evolution is, is, are the, those first self-replicating cells. From that moment in time, all the way to the present, falls under the um, auspices of the theory of evolution, And there's a ton of stuff that has had to happen to get us from that beginning point all the way here. And all those different elements need to have been correct for the whole thing to work as a whole. So if we have this this certainty scale that I mentioned earlier, that means that we we have accumulated sufficient data for all these little points along the way that compose the, the, the whole of the theory of evolution from, from that beginning time all the way to the present. And we have um, more than sufficient data to have high levels of confidence that they, they're all happen for us to be able to say that the whole thing, that we have uh, uh, a high level of confidence in the theory as a whole, okay? So again, <clears throat> the stuff I've been talking about in this presentation doesn't have to do just with evolution. It has to do with all of science. But I did want to apply it to the theory of evolution as well. Um, however, we got we to gotta look at it as applying to, to science for, for the entirety of, of reality. From, from the very beginning of how things came into existence, how things started at the very beginning of time, the Big Bang, maybe before the Big Bang, whether there's a multiverse, whatever is there, all of that stuff all the way to to where we are today and and to reality as we see it today, all that falls under the auspices of science and the the issues that I'm I'm mentioning apply to all that because we start off not knowing which option is more probable. Did the whole thing happen naturally or was there supernatural interference? We don't have any way to know. Um, We can say it's a 50-50 chance However, we don't have a way to to look at things from a a supernaturalistic perspective because we don't understand anything about the supernatural. We cannot test it. we cannot reason through that perspective. So we're kind of forced to stay on the natural side of things. So we end up using a, a methodology that assumes naturalism. So we have two possible perspectives, but we just focus all our attention on one of them. And... We keep looking for naturalistic solutions. If we can find them, we keep we keep looking for others. And and you know, if one naturalistic solution doesn't work, we come up with another natural solution. Even though we don't actually know that, that's what actually happened. It could have been that the supernatural option was correct. Um, and then, if we do find a solution that seems to work, it actually a lot of times it takes really a really long time to get to a a level where we have high confidence that our solution is correct. Sometimes it could take centuries uh, where we we might have a a hypothesis, we might have a theory, but the level of confidence we have in that theory takes time to develop because we need to accumulate data and and it's not always possible to to do that quickly. Okay, so sometimes, um, even when we look at something and we, we don't, we're not able to find a naturalistic solution. We still assume that we'll come up with one later. So maybe in hundred years, in 200 years when, when science advances, then we will discover a, a supernatural, I mean, a, a naturalistic solution. So because of that, even in situations where we, we try all the natural options that we cannot, we cannot find anything that works, we still don't skip over and say, okay, so this must be a supernatural thing. No, we say no. Um, maybe in a hundred years we will find a, a naturalistic answer, and 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 then we'll solve it that way. We'll solve it then. So, the the scientific reasoning process is always skewed towards the natural, even though we don't actually know that's the correct perspective. We don't have any way to know that ahead of time. Um, so essentially, this is what I mean when I say that there is a a naturalistic bias in science to where if we gave equal probability to the two options, natural versus supernatural, the scientific methodology will, will constantly pull towards the natural side. And because there's this sort of range, this uh, this curve that I had earlier where, where it takes time for us to really figure out if, if a solution we have, a naturalistic solution, is valid or not, we're always sort of leaning on the natural side of things even, even though maybe in some situations some aspects of reality uh, did have some kind of supernatural interference. Um, our scientific processes kind of cause us to, to be blinded to that possibility um, just because we're always, we're always looking for the natural explanation. So it's kind of like if a crime was committed and there's two possible suspects, but the detective focuses all their attention on one suspect and doesn't pay any attention to the other. And all the time that they're doing, looking for evidence, they're always focusing on the one suspect. That's kind of how we are with science. But in a sense, there's not much we can do about it because um, the the supernatural option, we don't have a way to test it. So we're kind of forced to go the natural route. So anyway, the point is that uh, there's this sort of tension uh, within the the realm of of the philosophy of science. And I have not heard anyone provide a good solution to this tension. And the, the, the tendency for most people is to just ignore it, to just say, no, science is fine the way it is regardless of whether people take the atheistic route and they say, well, I have no reason to think that God exists. So I'm just going to assume naturalism is correct and science is great. Or you have theists who are dualists who say, well, in, in my philosophy, I don't have a problem with, with all of reality being naturalistic because there's this supernatural layer underneath. And that still allows me to believe in God and all this stuff. So I don't have a problem with it. And, um, whichever perspective people are coming from, they don't seem to ever address this tension that exists between what we actually can know about reality and the fact that the methodology of science pulls us towards one possibility and tends to ignore the other possibility. Okay, so I want to I give an example that's more specific to evolution now. So the question is, um, what do I think are some areas within evolutionary science where things are not known as, as confidently as people assume they are? Now, a lot of times when we talk about evolution, we talk about genetic variation, natural selection, mutations, fossils, et cetera. Um, these are the common conversational topics, but I think a lot of this stuff uh, isn't really up for debate. I mean, <clears throat> gener- genetic variation exists, natural selection does work, mutations do happen, fossils exist, all this stuff is not really up for debate. I think the, the the one aspect of evolution that has the most difficulties um, has to do with um, complex biological uh, elements, you know, the, the common, Term that people use within intelligent design circles are things like biological machines. So, um, you know, the living organisms have different components that, that are complex in nature to the point where there's multiple parts that have to work together in a certain way. And some of them are at a lower level of complexity while others are extremely complex like the eye or the brain. Now, I know the eye is is, uh, something that is always thrown out there, but for good reason. Uh, I mean, like, okay, so let me, I'll come back to this in a second. Um, The, this topic, this this point was raised by Michael Behe about two, three decades ago uh, when he published uh, Darwin's black box. And he came up with this term called irreducible complexity. So, his idea was you know, you have kind of like a mousetrap, or if you take a part out, it stops working as a mousetrap, it stops catching mice. And, you know, he gave examples of the uh, <clears throat> bacterial flagellum and, and the uh, blood ca- clotting cascade and a few others in his book, where um, he argued that there's these components of living things that um, are so complex that if you, if you, if you try to evolve them through this step-by-step process, um, you're not gonna be able to because all the components need to be there to work, okay? And of course, people came back at him with with many different arguments and so on. And and, uh, during the Dover trial, um, I think his name is Kenneth Miller, which is a, a scientist, I think a Catholic scientist, who pointed out that you could take the bacterial flagellum And you could actually reduce it because there is something called the type three secretory system, which is a component of the bacterial flagellum. So there you go, you have a reduction. So this thing is not irreducibly complex after all, so Behe is wrong. So the final conclusion was that um, people like Behe and other intelligent design proponents have never offered sufficient evidence that there, there are things that cannot evolve and have not really provided Uh, we don't don't really have any other alternatives to to the evolutionary process anyway. So chances are that these things did evolve after all. So that was kind of like the the approach, the response that was given to this stuff. Now, if we come back to the eye and we think about it a little bit, the the way it's usually explained, like how can something as complex as the eye evolve over time? And, and people, you know, scientists will come back and say like, look, it's, it's actually fairly simple. You know, you start off with a photosensitive cell and then you put this photosensitive cell within this, uh, um, basically you surround it with, with other components and then these things kind of cave in and they create this sort of tunnel so that the photosensitive cell can only detect light in one direction as opposed to all over the place. Um, and then you, at the end of this little concave shape you, you know, some mucus forms, and then that hardens and becomes a lens. And now you get like more clear, a more clear sense of um, the shape of things and so on. So basically there's different steps you can have that kind of give you a mental picture of of how something really complex like the eye can evolve. Now I would say that, hey, well, that's a good attempt to to address the evolution of of things like the eye. The reality is that the eye um, really is much more complex than than some of these things try to make it out to be. And I guess just to put things into perspective, um, even up to this time, we're still trying to develop a bionic eye. So imagine that somebody's blind and, or, or, you know, they have, they've had their eye taken out. Why couldn't we, you know, we have cameras, we we've created all kinds of devices that work similarly to the way an eye works. Why couldn't we build a device and put it in the person's eye socket and connect it to the, their nerves and give them back their ability to see. Why couldn't we build that ourselves um, for somebody that has lost an eye? Well, um, when I first started talking about this about 10 years ago, um, they had not yet developed a Bionic Chi. I think the last time I checked about a year ago, they were actually fairly close to, to, to building one. But you got to put that into perspective that, you know, we're in the 21st century, the year is 20 to 21. Um, it took us still this, this, this late in our technological advancements to come up with a bionic eye. I mean, we've we've built spacecrafts that um, the solar probe that travels to space at 250,000 miles an hour. Uh, you know, we have iPhones that have an entire computer in the palm of your hand, and we built those before we were able to build a bionic eye. Just to give give us a sense of how complex this the stuff really is. Um, now, if we're going to talk about the evolution of the, we've got to recognize the fact that this stuff is really complicated. Um, for those that want to get deeper into this, I made a video some years ago, um, kind of discussing the whole issue of irreducible complexity. I'm going to put the video as the next episode after this one. So if this is episode 21, it's going to be episode 22. It's a really old video, it's poorly done, but it is what it is. Um, it just goes into the stuff in more detail. I don't want to spend that much time with it now. <clears throat> okay, but why does this matter? Well, when you're dealing with mutations, so you have, you know, let's say you have an organisms, well, uh, looking at the evolutionary paradigm going way back in history, you have an organism that doesn't have anything to do with the eye. And then millions of years later, you have the descendants of that organism that have a fully functional eye at the level of complexity of the human eye. And then you start thinking about the pathway. How did we get from here to here? Well, there's has to be different kinds of mutations that take place that provide the genetic um, blueprint for this eye to develop over time. And genetic mutations are of three types. Some are advantageous, some are neutral, and some are detrimental. This This is just, common, common genetic knowledge. But the problem when you're dealing with things that are complex, like this biological machines, uh, something like the eye, um, <clears throat> it's hard to, to see how exactly this pathway will take place as things continue to progress. Um, natural selection works when when a mutation is advantageous. <clears throat> so if you have a a, a certain a very simple eye and something happens and it makes it slightly better then chances are that natural selection will select for it and and pass it on. Um, but when you're dealing with complex things like like that that are similar to man-made machines like this biological elements that are 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 just a a very complex collection of different parts that work together a certain way. It's hard to believe that every single step going. uh, Okay, let me let me use an illustration. Let's say you 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 want to develop an iPhone starting with with a a rotary phone from about thirty or forty years ago when we have those little you know those weird telephones where you put in your numbers by circling that wheel you know, you you spin the wheel and then you get the next number. Try to think of a step-by-step process getting you from that rotary phone all the way to the modern iPhone where you keep making one tiny change at a time until you get to something as complex as the iPhone. And the question is, is every single change that you're gonna make gonna be a positive change? Couldn't it, isn't it likely that you would at times need to make changes that are not positive? So if they're neutral, then what does natural selection have to grab onto to say, okay, this is advantageous, so I'm gonna pass it on. But what if the, you're, you're getting, you get to a place where you're gonna to have to make a change and this change actually has a detrimental effect temporarily. So over, over a longer period of time, over several mutations, eventually it's gonna make the device better, but to make it better, you first have to kind of take it apart a little bit. Like imagine you're building a house where you're fixing up a house and you have to tear down some walls to to make it make a bigger room well while you're doing that <clears throat> that room is not inhabitable until you manage to fix the rest of it so logically speaking it seems like there's to 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 get some of these complex things from one level of complexity to another the pathway might at times cause detrimental effects just to 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 kind of skip over a stage to the next stage when when things get better again. So things are working now, then you take it apart a little bit, it doesn't work as well. Then you come back and you put it back together a little better and then it works better. But during that period of time, the mutations could actually have a negative effect and and natural selection will fight you on that. It will will actually um, oppose that, that progress because it doesn't recognize that as progress. So anyway, all these are questions that I, I don't think, uh, I don't see how they could really be addressed at this point in time because we don't even understand how some of this stuff works. Um, and another issue with this whole thing is the, the, the level of the population and the reproductive rates. Because when you're dealing with simple things like bacteria, right? You have massive population sizes and they reproduce, reproduce really fast. So if you have some mutations even if they, even if they're neutral, uh, you could just randomly get lucky, and it will skip over to the next step. And even if it's if it's a negative mutation temporarily, like like something, you know, you have some organ that needs to stop functioning for a few generations, so that when it comes back, it it works even better. Who cares? <clears throat> Who cares? I mean, you're dealing with <laughs> I'm losing my voice. you're dealing with with, you know billions and billions of of little organisms and they reproduce like two three times a day you know there's plenty of time for for these things to get lucky right but as you get more and more advanced all of a sudden you know you have uh long periods of time uh between reproductions you know you have long generation spans uh, and you have small numbers of organisms. So the whole process slows down tremendously, even though the, <clears throat> the, the elements that you're working with, uh, the organs that you're trying to develop are actually more complex. So within bacteria, you're dealing with very simple stuff. You know, it might be a, a small photosensitive cell. By the time you're dealing with uh, with mammals, these are highly complex uh, organs or highly complex uh, Components, but just when you need, um, you know, the reproductive rates and and, and the, the mutations to happen quickly, so that you could kind of make the progress you need to make, that's when things are moving way slower because you know things don't reproduce as fast and there the there's not as many of them. So anyway, all these things are issues that uh, haven't really been dealt with, um, but. You know, even though they were raised by people like Big and other uh, intelligent design proponents and others, the response was basically like, "Look, we don't really have another alternative to the theory of evolution, and at this point in time, it's plausible that it could work, and uh, we don't have any reason to think that it doesn't work." And, and it was just that. So essentially, <clears throat> the the conf- using that confidence scale, I I I've used. That I that I had in a previous slide. This is at least one element <clears throat> in the theory of evolution where the confidence scale isn't as high as maybe other other elements in the theory of evolution, uh, because we just don't we don't have the the capacity to really demonstrate these things, to co- to make a compelling case that that in fact they could have evolved for sure. Uh, <clears throat> And even if somebody says, "Well, for the eye, for the eye, we, we, we can prove that the eye evolved." Uh, I would say something like the human brain and, and the, the fact that we have consciousness and self-awareness, we don't even know how these things work. You know, maybe in another 50 or 100 years, when somebody creates a computer that becomes self-aware, uh, that has consciousness, that becomes human-like in, in its thinking and, and all this stuff. Once we understand what, what consciousness is, because remember, you know, for the Christians out there, scientists are not dualists. They don't think consciousness is, is coming from the soul. They think consciousness is coming from the brain. And that whole thing evolved, okay? So <clears throat> we would first need to come up with, 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 with some kind of computer that, that is capable of, of doing what the human brain is doing before we can make claims that that this thing's definitely evolved i mean if we don't even understand how it works how do we know for sure that it evolved how can we how can we uh, be that confident that this thing evolved um and that there's some kind of pathway some kind of genetic pathway that brings us for for certain to this to this point in time where where um the brain is able to to Produce consciousness. We don't even know how consciousness actually works. So the point is that the the level of confidence we have in some of this stuff is still is still is not where a lot of people claim it is. Uh, let me see if I have anything else I want to make any other point I want to make here. Yeah. So we want to create self-aware computers. We would have to do that before claiming that we can prove there's a genetic pathway that takes us there. Uh, Anyway, it's a point I've already made. I made it ahead of my slide. All right, so what is the point of all this? Am I saying science is bad? No. Uh, Is this an argument against evolution? No. Uh, At this point in time, science is the best tool we have for studying the world, to studying the the universe around us. Um, You know, if some intelligent design creationists, people come up with a better tool, great. But until then science is what we have and we need to use it and and stick with it and take it seriously. But the point is that I think we can have a higher degree of tentativity to recognize that the degree of certainty in some of the claims scientists make are not, uh, the degree of certainty is not at at as high a level as, as people make it out to be there needs to be a little more epistemic humility because again, we don't actually know if we live in a naturalistic, naturalistic reality or if there, there's been supernatural interference that brought us here. We don't even know if we're in the primary or secondary reality, if we use the computer simulation analogy. And the methodology we use, the scientific methodology is always kind of skewing us towards the natural option, just because of the whole scientific reasoning process. We're always, um, <clears throat> we're always looking for natural solutions. If we cannot find them, we, we still assume we're gonna find them in the future. And we, we're always ignoring the supernatural side of things. And this creates a bias, right? Okay, so the first the first solution, the first thing I'm proposing is that we're more honest about the degree of certainty we have on, on, uh, regarding some of these things. Another solution, I don't know if this, if this can work or not, but maybe there's a way to, to introduce alternative hypotheses. Um, <clears throat> now, a lot of scientists get concerned when, when this idea comes up because uh, they're afraid of, of uh, philosophy and religion interfering with science. You know, when people have all these beliefs and then they try to come up with with ways to to prove them scientifically, it actually creates problems for science. Um, But I would say that science has been around long enough and it's well established enough that it might, might, I don't think it needs to worry as much about about this as it, it used to need to worry about it back a few decades in the past and so on. So I think it could be that we're at a time where (laughs) <laughs> at a time in history where science is well enough established that we can look for ways to consider al- alternative hypotheses. And what do I mean by that? <clears throat> okay, so if we allow for these two possibilities, the naturalistic paradigm and the, the second paradigm where, where God exists and God somehow contributed to the to the creation of this universe, even if it's just uh, at the beginning of it, or at some point along the way, we cannot. We don't have a way to test supernatural hypotheses, but maybe there's some situations where we can actually convert those supernatural hypotheses to natural hypotheses and then test test it that way. So, as an example of this, and I don't know, I, I can't think of how exactly this would work, and I don't have the science background to to even. Um, <clears throat> Uh, explain it any, any further than this, but regarding evolution. Okay, so let's, let's think about, let, let's look at another analogy. Um, we're making sufficient progress as, as we're going about in our, in our scientific uh, development, that maybe within another 10, 20, 30 years, um, you know, we're gonna send people out in space traveling at, at a fairly high speeds and let's just assume that <clears throat> as they're traveling through space, they come across some other planet and this planet uh, has life on it, but it's not advanced life. Like maybe it has microbes, maybe it has some, some uh, primitive plants and, and things like that, right? Now let's, let's imagine that, that <clears throat> the people uh, traveling through space, uh, and, and, and they, they land on this planet. Let's just say there's some bioengineers on board and they start to fidget with the genetic makeup of these organisms and they, they introduce some genetic changes. <clears throat> and then when they leave, um, over time, these organisms um, start developing and they evolve into, into something far more advanced. But it's as a result of those genetic changes introduced by these bioengineers. And let's say that over time this, this organism has evolved intelligent life and with time they, bec- they understand the scientific method and they become they have their scientists and they study their own past, how would they go about <clears throat> how would they go about figuring out that at some point, millions of years in the past, some intelligent, individuals came in and fidgeted with their genetic makeup and that made the revolution possible. I don't know how they would discover that, how they would be able to tell that that's the case. But then how, how can we, <clears throat> how do we know that that didn't happen to this planet? Maybe at some point in the past, somebody fidgeted with our whole genetic makeup and how would we even know that that's the case? Anyway, if it's possible to take that as a hypothesis, to consider that and to study it, uh, that could be a hypothesis where you take the idea of, of divine interference and you convert it to something natural that can actually be tested scientifically somehow. I don't know exactly how it could be done, but but if it's possible, then then you know it, it could be a way for us to, to look for alternative ways of studying, studying the world um, that that can consider this possibility of the supernatural. So anyway, so that's, that's a, a way to do it. I don't know if it works or not, but I'm just putting it out there because um, essentially like if as long as you look at things from a supernatural perspective, I don't see any way to, to study them and, and, and to come up with hypotheses or anything like that, because there's no, there's no way to understand the supernatural and to, to make predictions off, off of the supernatural. But if you can take something and convert it to, to a natural hypothesis, uh, then you might be able to come up with, with a, a different way of looking at things. And, and uh, as long as he makes testable predictions, and uh, as long as if you, know, if you go and you, you do your experiments and the data confirms your experiments, then it's, it's something worth considering. It's a pathway wor- worth exploring. Uh, <clears throat> of course, again, making sure that you're not letting your biases direct your research. So yeah, so that's, that's another possibility. Uh, Overall, there's a lot of work that I think still needs to be done in the realm of the philosophy of science because um, it just doesn't seem like people are really looking at at this, this discrepancy between what we can actually know about reality and the assumptions we're making when we're doing our science. Now, again, I am somebody that thinks those assumptions are, are methodologically necessary. Like we don't have a better way to do our science, but somehow we got to find a balance between our methodological necessities and the, the, the things that we can actually know about reality because we can get, otherwise we could get ourselves lost in the methodology to the point where we think we know more than we actually know. All right, so now, as a final thought towards other Christians, whether uh, people that are pro-evolution, Christians that are pro-evolution or those that are anti-evolution, <clears throat> again, the pro-evolution Christians, I wanna ask them to, to be conscious of the dualistic lenses they bring to science and to be aware of the fact that scientists don't think that way when they do their science and to 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 be conscious of that as 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 they think about uh, the whole process, uh, because the, their dualism is it ends up affecting their their ability to discern uh, the value or the legitimacy of scientific conclusions. That's for the pro evolution uh, Christians. The anti evolution uh, Christians, again, like I said, um, <clears throat> I don't think there is you know unless you're willing to to develop your own scientific community with its own methodology and improve yourselves that way then we got to find a way to work within the confines of the the present scientific methodology and to to look for a way to to <clears throat> to function within that which which might mean working on the philosophy of science and to to find a better balance here or or coming up with alternative theories um, that study that somehow find a way to take supernatural ideas and convert them into natural hypotheses that we could actually test scientifically. All this stuff, but there's no point to keep fighting uh, the science the way the way a lot of a lot of anti-evolution people have been doing um, because it's it's creating problems for you know you know it's we're developing large groups of people, people of faith, people that, you know, believe in God and they don't want to give up on their faith. We're creating a a fear of science in them that, that is unnecessary and we got to find a better way to deal with that. Uh, And again, atheists um, who are looking at things from, from that perspective, um, they're, they're, you know, I, I don't know if, 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 how convinced uh, you are after watching this that uh, their epistemology um, is not sound, but I just hope to to convince you to 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 think through your epistemology a little bit better uh, because there really isn't a way for you to 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 know that one perspective is more plausible than the other. Um, there isn't a basis on which to to build that conclusion. Um, But I don't know, I've thought for a really long time and some of the stuff might've been confusing to most listeners, but I think we need to think through these issues carefully because otherwise, um, the kind of situation we've just gone through with the pandemic with large groups of people especially people of faith being skeptical of science is dangerous and um, if there's anything we can do to to remedy that situation and to to get people to the point where they understand science better and they they have a reason to be confident in in the scientific process if there's anything we can do on our part or on the, the part of the scientists to, to make that a possible, I think it's worth doing, because um, the the skepticism, the, the science skepticism of half of society, uh, half that maybe we're not part of, affects all of us, as we as we've seen as we've seen uh, just recently. Okay, as always. Um, if anybody wants to discuss these things with me uh, I'm more than willing, uh, my, my channel is basically made for conversations. I'm somewhat busy over the next few weeks because I have to finish a dissertation. But, uh, uh, you know, get in touch with me and uh, uh, if it's possible for us to meet, that would be great. All right. Uh, thank you. And I uh, <laughs> hope you survived through the whole uh, two hours or so worth of talking.